Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. This is an hour dedicated to understanding a little more about ourselves, our beliefs, and how we approach enlightenment. Indeed, an hour devoted to learning something more, not just about the world we live in, but about how, what, and why we think as we do. An hour for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas about who we are and what we might become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. Okay, each week I read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week, our guest was Simran Singh, and we spoke about the soul's voice and the 1111 call. Brian wrote, how about that Simran Singh show? This was a very thought-provoking show for me, getting the old noodle nudged in just the right way in just the right time. Candace wrote, thanks, Eldon, for the show with Simran Singh. I was walking my dog along the Spokane River when I began listening at 1111. I was activated by 1111 in 1991. It changed my life, and I have been guided spiritually since by a group of Ascended Masters. This was such a great show. It helped refocus me from being in my head into my heart, something I needed to do on a regular basis. Loretta wrote, fantastic show today. I will have to listen to the archives to listen to the whole thing again. What a wonderful guest. Thank you, Simran, Eldon, Ravinder, and Andrea. What a good feeling I have inside. Ovidu, Ovidu, I believe that's how it's said. Ovidu wrote, thanks, just listened to the show with Simran. Awesome. By the way, I am on the 555 team. If you missed the show, you're just going to have to go to the archives to learn what the 555 team is. Now, this next letter presents a challenge to me. But this is provocative enlightenment. And I should be just as willing to deal with the tough questions as any of our guests. So here goes. Vicky wrote, I have a comment about something you said while talking to Simran Singh. Her sister, as you mentioned, is Nikki Haley, the governor of South Carolina, where I live. You commented that Mrs. Haley upholds conservative values, and by contrast, Simran holds a liberal political perspective, like any and all people sharing global concerns and speaking about spiritual matters. New Age liberals with a strong affinity for the Democratic Party. Wow. I was really offended by both the snide put-down of Mrs. Haley and the assumption that all of us, quote, sharing global concerns and speaking about spiritual matters, close quote, are New Age liberals and have an affinity for the Democratic Party. I really enjoy listening to your shows and other material, but I don't care to know about your political leanings, nor do I think Hay House is the place for political stumping this election year. Please realize that not everyone shares your enthusiasm for the direction the country is headed, and some of us might not want four more years of Democrats. Now, you know, I must admit to hesitating before deciding to share this letter on the air um, for lots of reasons, including the fact that it flabbergasted me uh, and my wife that, it was taken that way. But then I am always saying that everything we do is a part of our spiritual lives. As such, integrity insists that I meet the challenge offered, one of growing some more for myself, I suppose, 
and speak directly to the question so there is no misunderstanding. Firstly, I apologize to any and all of you if that is what you took away from my remarks. That was not my intention, nor was it literally what I said. I reached out to Simran to make certain she did not have the same impression, and she did not. But nevertheless, if Vicky did, perhaps some of you did as well. I have the greatest respect for Governor Haley. We've invited her to the show. Ravinder is working with her people now in setting up a date. And, in fact, I generally agree with her ideas and opinions, just as I do with her sister Simran. My intention was to contrast two sides and show how they have and can be positively bridged. I did point out something that honestly disturbs me. People tend to jump to conclusions and assume that since I am a Hay House author and such, that I am a New Age liberal. That's totally false. I see myself as an independent, more of a centrist with respect to politics, and a universalist with respect to religion and spirituality. If anything, those of you who subscribe to my newsletters and listen regularly to this show probably already know that I lean toward conservative values, self-responsibility, and we have discussed that in great detail in the past. Now, I do not wish to offend anyone, but in the context of my question to Simran, I wanted to provide her with the opportunity to express her political leaning, and as such, I framed her perspective from the standpoint that by association, just as with myself, she would appear to be liberal. Her response to the question avoided a direct declaration of one view or the other, and rather addressed how she and her sister actually are doing the same thing, but from a different starting point. She works on the inner, while her sister, the governor, works on the outer. Now, to be clear, for I do not in any way mean to mislead, I, too, am very sad about the direction of this country, and I will be expressing my feelings in November when I go to the polls. I share that with you only to ensure that there is no ambiguity as that taken by Vicky. Now, before continuing, there is another matter worthy of our interest at this point. Our country is seriously divided at this time, and that is a reflection of each of us. But there are ways to understand this without divorcing everyone that disagrees with our own point of view. Indeed, there is a researcher, Jonathan, Jonathan, Dr. Jonathan Haidt, that we're working on bringing to the show, who's written a wonderful little book, The Righteous Mind, that is all about the differences between liberals and conservatives. And the bottom line is this, at least in the extreme, they each reach their conclusions as the result of ethical arguments, and there exists both personality and unconscious reaction differences between the two groups. Indeed, one study has actually shown an anatomical difference in the brain. However, however, if I can get that out, for purposes here, here are some of the, the findings we should all consider because when we do, we can see the value in both perspectives and then work without grievance toward a reconciliation. And that's precisely what I think we should be doing. Conservatives are more attuned than liberals to assessing potential threats. 
Liberals are open and novelty-seeking, while conservatives are orderly and self-disciplined. Conservatives are fundamentally more anxious than liberals, which may be why they typically desire stability, structure, and clear answers to even complicated questions. Research shows that when there is a common threat, such as what America experienced following 9-11, all of us become more conservative. In an ingenious experiment conducted by Height, liberals and conservatives were offered choices with incentives to make them. Participants had to say whether they would do the deeds offered for money, and if so, how much money would it take for them to do that deed. Liberals were reluctant to harm a living thing or act unfairly, but they were willing to betray group loyalty, disrespect authority, or do something disgusting such as eating their own dog after it died. Conservatives said they were less willing to compromise on any of the moral categories. So when next you differ with your fellow human being on matters of this sort, remember that you are fundamentally predisposed, just as they are, to a particular point of view. And they both have merit. Just as your left and right brain hemispheres have different specialties, both are necessary for a balanced life. Talk it through and remember, quoting Emily Labor Warren from her marvelous article, one I would strongly suggest you all read. It's available on the Internet. Calling a truce in the political wars. Quote, both sides are wise to different virtues. Close quote. Let me say that one more time. Both sides are wise to different virtues. All right, back to our letters. Nancy wrote, thank you for all you do. Love your radio show. Terry wrote, I have really been enjoying your Intertalk programs. They have been so much help in my life. Odwin wrote, Intertalk is the best for positive results. Gino wrote, whoa, I ordered your Echotech weight loss CD and started to listen to it right away. I use headphones at night and usually fall asleep with it playing CD player on repeat mode and end up waking up after it is played about five to eight times. I've already lost about eight pounds, and I'm actually walking and jogging more without any forethought on my part. Amazing. Thanks again. Well, congrats, Gino, and keep it up. Or should I say, keep it off. Selena wrote, I have five of your CDs and one of your DVDs, and I have read two of your books. They have helped me and are still helping with many stresses and bad attitudes. Your inner talk programs and books have helped me feel like a worthy person again after almost 20 years of self-defeating beliefs. Thank you. Well, thank you, Selena, and all of you out there for your feedback. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine. You can express your opinions by emailing me at eldon at eldentaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. We can't get all of your letters on the air, but we do thank you for your feedback, and it definitely impacts our programming. Um, in fact, it impacts our growth <laughs> as well. We recognize that it is because of your support that our show is successful, and again, we thank you. Now to today's show, Consciousness, Bridging the Gap Between Conventional Science and the New Super Science of Quantum Mechanics. Now our guest today has done something I have often thought about, and that is she has taken a subject of interest and interviewed some of the best minds available anywhere, recorded those interviews, and written them out in discussions in her new book, Consciousness. 
So think about this. If you interviewed all of the experts having anything to do with consciousness research, what would they say? Would there be any concert or hard evidence to their findings? Today, we will speak with Eva Hare about just what she found when conducting interviews of this nature. In her new book, Consciousness, Bridging the Gap Between Conventional Science and the New Super Science of Quantum Mechanics, some truly meaningful questions are asked. Questions such as, does the presence of sensate awareness, cognitive awareness, and self-awareness assure that consciousness is active? Are these attributes of consciousness? Are they signifiers of consciousness? What is the nature of consciousness? Do we have free will? What are the differences between mind and brain, energy and physical objects in the body and soul? And who says so with what special knowledge, authority, or insight and evidence to support their claim? Eva has been with us before in her last appearance here. Many of you enjoyed her on-the-air medical intuitive advice. But just in case you missed that show, let me tell you a little about her. Eva Hare is one of the most respected talk shows on Internet radio, The Infinite Consciousness on BBS Radio. For years, she has had the opportunity to engage the minds of today's top thinkers in fields of science and consciousness, as well as on holistic and alternative medicine. Eva is a certified holistic counselor and a world-renowned medical intuitive. She is a friend of mine, and she's also the author of the wonderful book, Agape. So let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Eva Hare. Thank you for having me, Eldon. It's such a pleasure to be here. Indeed, it's our pleasure. This is, uh, this. I love your book. I have to get that out. I, you know, it. it is definitely a book that I think everybody should read. The conversations are very real. Uh, they're spontaneous. They... Uh, there isn't the rehearsal and the redressing that you often see in uh, printed books. It's it's a it's a very engaging book. Uh, that said, and, oh, and I should add, I had the privilege of reading your manuscript some months ago, and uh, you know, as I read your book, I have to I have to point out to our audience that there are many people that would disagree with the scientists that you chose to interview. Indeed, Nobel laureate Murray Gell-Mann is essentially called, you know, Goswami and, and his ilk, uh, quantum flap doodlers. Uh, you have chosen to write a book based on a direction and interview authors all who agree with that direction. And I assume that that's by design. If it's not, please correct me. If it is, please explain why you did that. Well, it started out probably 15 years ago. I had a friend who was an astrophysicist who was also, I guess the best way to describe it, enlightened. He worked on the, NASA, the uh, with, for NASA on the Apollo projects. And so he knew everything out there, Bohm, you know, everybody. He knew the work of everybody. And so... We started talking about these questions, and so we decided, let's make up the questions that scientists need to, to bridge the gap between, because so many of these people aren't even aware of the other people's work. They stay in their laboratories, and they do their own particular thing, 
Henry Stapp didn't even know Bill Tiller existed. You know, somebody else doesn't know this person existed. But the biggest problem that I found was when we made up these 20 questions, what is, what is consciousness when you talk about that thing? What is it? Um, what is mind? What, you know, does brain think? Is brain the same as mind? And the biggest thing that I found is when I asked these people what is consciousness, I would ask that. I did probably 50 or 60 interviews to cut down to those 11 interviews in that book. Mm-hmm. Everybody had a different definition of consciousness. Of One course. person would say that it's the ground of all being. One person would say it's the zero-point field. One person would say that it was the irreducible unit. One person would say it was the opposite of being in a coma. One person would say that it's aware that you exist. One person would say it was the awareness that somebody else existed. So when actually using Amit, when Amit read this manuscript, he went, oh, my God, no wonder we're having this problem, Eva. Imagine 30 scientists sitting at a conference room table, and we're all talking about this thing, consciousness. But every single one of us has a different definition. I might add my background's in litigation, so having meeting of the mind is very important to me. You know, it means something to me. He said, imagine if there are 30 of us sitting together at a conference room table and we're trying to put together a model of physical reality. And we're all using this word consciousness. But unbeknownst to one another, not one single one of us have the same definition of that word as the next person. And we don't even know it. So we end up throwing up our papers in the air, slamming our chairs under the table, and leaving the room mad at one another. And so I went, oh, my God, you know, I have to do something about this. And I even went so far as to talk to a linguist one time, Matthew Bronson, out in California. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he said, yeah, that's a problem here, but how do we fix it? I've never gone so far as taken on that task. As because it would require the whole world, you know, to agree to come up with different words just that mean the different aspects of consciousness. So I thought, well, what I can do is educate. This book is really directed a part of it to science. The rest of it is developed, I mean, directed to the average public so that they can know why there is all this confusion in this research. And I thought at least I can educate these people that the problem exists, and hopefully, since they're allegedly intelligent people, they will become aware of it and do something about it, and hopefully we can have a quantum leap in understanding, which if we could do that, if we could have a quantum leap of understanding in quantum mechanics, since we're conditioned by science since kindergarten, we could change the world in almost an instant. Yeah, and... and you know, therein becomes a part of the problem because, as you're well aware, the skeptics would say that uh, what you have is jargon-laden sound bites uh, that, for all intent and purposes, don't build a solid structure for anything. I mean, I've provided an endorsement for your book, so uh, let's get that out in the open. And indeed, as I've stated in my blurb, which appears in your book, you will find many white crows in Eva Hare's new book, not just about consciousness at large, but about our personal consciousness and its power in this paradigm-shattering composition. Now, the material is either paradigm-shattering, as I suggested, or rubbish. So what do you say to a naysayer like Susan Blackmore, 
who worked as uh, a parapsychologist for many years and notes in her book, Consciousness and Introduction, that most of what we have learned so far in studying consciousness seems to point away from the existence of minds that are separate from brains that can magically affect the world. I'm quoting her, parapsychology, she says, seems to be growing further away from the progress and the excitement of the rest of consciousness studies. What do you say to that? Well, I have to, my, you know, I'm just a woman, Eldon, you know, I'm not. <laughs> Don't cop out on me. You're <laughs> much more than that, Eva Hare. But I want people to know, you know, I don't have a Ph.D., but what I have learned through my own personal experience and through probably 50 or 60 interviews is that if someone is looking at that, then they're only looking at it through their perspective. Every People need to understand, if you had a microscope, you know, every single thing that is is made up of atoms. And granted, everybody, we know that from, from kindergarten. Atoms makes up this physical reality as we know it. But if you had a microscope that was powerful enough so that you could zoom in on that atom, and we pretty much, the scientists pretty much agree that physical reality, the matter in physical reality is constructed by electrons. So let's just say we took that microscope and we zoomed in on an electron. We would not find, a and we'll use a part of a hydrogen molecule, which is one electron, one proton, and one Great. neutron. Yep. We plucked out that electron and looked at it really closely. We wouldn't find a single electron. What we would find is particle, much smaller particles all stuck together, forming what appears from a distance to be a single particle. Then if we plucked out, you know, things called quarks and gluons. Then if we plucked out one of those things and zoomed in on it even small, even closer, we wouldn't find a quark and a gluon at all. We would find much smaller particles stuck together that made it appear from a distance to be a single particle. Well, eventually you do that enough and you're going to get down to what we call the irreducible unit where there is nothing but energy and information. And so... She's not con- looked at that part, and she made her, you know, many people are too closed-minded to go that far because we don't have a microscope to do it, but the scientist has been able to do the math to prove that that exists. So if you believe 2 plus 2 is 4, then you have to at least have an open, and you want to change the world or change their life, then you have to have an open mind enough to consider if 2 plus 2 is 4, then this is possible because the math adds up. Okay, but then, I mean, the math adds up within the equation, but the equation is written by a scientist, and other scientists will write different equations, and that math will be consistent and add up, but will come to different conclusions. For example, the work of uh, Pemro, uh, Roger Penrose and, uh, and Hammeroth, uh, Stuart Hammeroth, who's been on this show, and their microtubules, uh, the brain operating as a microprocessor in generating consciousness. But I'll tell you what. We'll come back. We've got a hard break coming up, and we'll get a little more depth on this uh, as we proceed. We're speaking with Eva Hare about her new book, Consciousness, Bridging the Gap Between Conventional Science and the New Science, Super Science of Quantum Mechanics. It's a great book, not yet released, but you can pre-order it at Amazon right now. If you're not already in our chat room, this is a great time to join in the conversation. 
There are some very meaningful thoughts being exchanged in there right now. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's coming up after these words from some of our friends. We'll be right back. Eldon's international best-selling book, Mind Programming, is a must-read if you wish to live awake in a world of sheeples. Film producer Jeff Warwick had this to say about Mind Programming. Dr. Eldon Taylor's new book is a must-read. If you've ever questioned your purpose in life or felt bound by a culture that's driven by mass media, you now have at your fingertips the knowledge and tools to break the chains of this cycle. Eldon goes in-depth to illustrate and expose how we've been programmed from birth by social constraints, and he methodically reveals the psychological techniques that advertisers, politicians, corporations, and the media use to control us. He then provides strategies and solutions to free your mind from these tactics and rise to a new level of consciousness. As you read this book, you'll feel the blinders being removed and will truly see the world in an entirely new light. Get your copy today online or at fine bookstores everywhere. Every day, every moment, we face choices. Yet, how many of those choices are truly our own? Are you ready to step onto the path of discovery? Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestseller, Choices and Illusions. Now revised, updated, and expanded. Eldon combines provocative information, scientific research, and his own life's journey into a powerful message that we have the power to change. All we must do is be willing to choose to take the chance and change. Get your copy today from all bookstores. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're discussing the book Consciousness, Bridging the Gap Between Conventional Science and the New Super Science of Quantum Mechanics with author Eva Hare. But before we get back to today's show, now I would also like to remind you to like our Facebook fan page for Provocative Enlightenment Radio. As a fan, you'll always know where we are and what's on next. And while you're there, I invite you to join me on Facebook as a friend as well. All right, back to today's show. Before the break, Eva, I had mentioned the work of Penrose and Hammeroth and and their microprocessor uh, model. And the, and the reason I mentioned that is because as I read your work, it seemed that the consensus of opinion, albeit as you pointed out, um, everyone was very careful to equivocate on their definition of consciousness. Nevertheless, the consensus of opinion, I think, could be summed up to say that consciousness was a non-local event. Uh, whether it was the ground of all being, as Goswami or Campbell might say, uh, or it, as you pointed out, was a, a singularity like zero point, it nevertheless uh, is non-local. When we look at the work of Penrose and Hammeroth, instead of having non-local, we have an explanation for the physical brain interacting at a quantum level through an operation that is physical and non-physical in nature. My question then is, after all of the interviews that you've done, where do you see consciousness? Um, 
Well, as you know, back in um, the mid-90s, I myself had some kind of spiritual epiphany. I, I know that, but, you know, I, take a minute and share that with everybody. Not everyone will have read your book, Agape, and, and I think that's a very important point or, or place to start from. It's actually agape, and agape is a Greek word that means unconditional love for another as you love yourself. Um, so I don't know what happened because I wasn't one of these spiritual seekers that go out and look for a guru or go to the conferences every week and try to learn something. It just happened in the blink of an eye, and I don't know why. just did. But once it did, it, it was like all of a sudden I saw the world as a different place. It changed me a lot because I'm going to tell you something. I was not the nicest woman you'll ever meet. And I'm but, not. but you're jumping ahead. Tell us about, I mean, it was a dark night of the soul. Tell I us what really happened. I had a dark night of the soul. I had, in six weeks, I had my mother kidnapped my child. Uh, she caused me to lose my job. I got pregnant, and I wasn't married, and my father died all in six weeks. I'm going to tell you something. It put my nose on the pavement. It really did. So there sure. wasn't any place to go but up. And so then a few years later, um, I got my son back. Actually, I was political back then, and I called Hillary Clinton, and I told her, uh, I did this for Bill in his first campaign. I expect you to help me and get my kid back, because it was got very complicated, going across state lines, and just, it was just complicated. Mm-hmm. So um, she did, and about a couple of years later, I went to bed one night, and all of a sudden, my father was standing before me, and he had died a couple of years ago. And I don't know if I was asleep or awake or whatever, but I, it was in the spring, and there was a floor fan going, and I could hear that. So I know that I was conscious in this, mean, in this meaning. I was aware to some degree. And then the next second, I was on the other side. At least I perceived myself to be on the other side. And you have to know, I am very black and white. I'm probably the biggest skeptic that ever walked on the earth, even though it may not sound like that. I really am. I, you know, I do litigation. And so um, the next morning when I woke up, I was in bliss, and I knew things about quantum mechanics, and I'd never, I never took physics in high school because I made straight A's, and I didn't want to make an F. So I just didn't take that class. You know, I took mm-hmm. biology instead and anatomy. But I knew things, and I don't know how I knew them, and so that's what started my search. I wanted to find out if these things that I knew made any sense or if I was just making them up in my head. The problem was that I didn't have the vocabulary to clearly talk about what I was getting in my head. I just could see the pictures in my head. So that's when I found Dr. Roy Scruggs, and he helped me do this. Um, I would like to, if it's okay, I see a post on your your, uh, message board by Richard that says, many, many authors misquote and misunderstand quantum mechanics. What has Eva done in research to make sure that she is not one of those voices? Well, what I did, Richard, is I have a radio show of my own. And Dr. Scruggs and I came up with what we call 20 questions. Actually, it was probably 30 or 40, but we call 20 questions. And each, I asked, and I probably did 50 or 60 interviews, I, and I pulled the most credentialed people that I could find around the world, people that had been uh, worked in hard science and engineering or physics or um, biology, whatever it was. I found people who were tenured 
and who had been doing it for a long time, and if they were nuts, they would have already been kicked out of their department. The chairman of the physics department at Stanford, the dean of the engineering department at Princeton, Urban Laszlo, who's been nominated. He's a systems analyst for two Nobel Peace Prizes. Henry Stapp, who's at Berkeley Laboratories, and they say he's going to be nominated for a Nobel Prize in the next decade for his work in consciousness. I just tried to pick the best people I could find, and I said to each one of them, I don't want to know what you think. I want to know what you know. So all I did was ask questions on my radio show. Then after the show, it took me 10 years to do this, I went back and transcribed them verbatim. And then I sent each chapter to the scientist, and I said, I'm about to publish this. You need to go through it and make sure this is really what you have to say, because I'm not going to change a word. And so they did their own editing and everything, and all I did was publish what they had to say. I, not any of my own um, opinions, because who am I to even have an opinion on these topics? You had the epiphany, though. That's the whole question. That's it. Every single thing in that book is verbatim, and they did their own editing. Okay. But now, my question, Eva, is where do you have consciousness? You had the experience. You came back with this information. You have validated much of that. So I'm now asking Eva, where do you have consciousness? It could be a two-hour conversation, but I'll shorten it to say I live in... My world every day is in the moment. I believe in the non-dual state where we're just observers, and that's the way I live my life. And I have amazing, and I'm not to say that just because somebody has an an enlightenment experience that that means your life's going to be blissful from then on, because there are such things as polarities. You know, if you're swinging in a swing hanging from a big oak tree, to whatever degree you go up, you are guaranteed to go back. There's also something called attractor fields in physics. And so whatever thing you focus on the most, it's almost like a magnet drawing it to you, and that's what I have found in my life. Uh, I, I mean, if I'm not careful, I feel like I literally float around during the day, and I have to go and ground myself by doing meditation and things such as that, using your CDs and tapping, just to interact with my family because my mind is just so different somewhere else. I don't know how to describe it, except that it has enabled me, because I still have bad things happen in my life just like anybody else, because how can you grow and learn to be anything different? I mean, if, if you've only had vanilla ice cream your entire life, how do you know if you like anything else? If you don't ever have chocolate. True. So you have to have experiences to grow. So I still have stuff. What it has provided me with is when I use what I have learned about consciousness and in this me in this definition, I mean everything that is, the ground of all being, the information, quantum entanglement, whatever you want to call it. Every the information of all there is. It's I have learned how to observe things without reacting to them, which completely changes the dynamics of everything that happens in my life. If something really bad happens, in fact, I'll give you an example. My daughter got raped by a gang three years ago at gunpoint for six hours. 
And I found her dead in her bed because she self-medicated with drugs. She didn't tell anybody. The second I walked in that room and saw her, this flash came through my mind. And I went, okay, Eva, you better walk your talk and help her. Or you can fall apart and start freaking out, and you can that'll guarantee that she's not going to come back alive. And she was already hard and cold and gray. But I, in a split second, I made the decision, I am going to walk my talk, and I am going to stay in this moment. And fortunately, we were able to save her. And there's a whole synchronicity about how that happened. That's a whole story in itself. But it gives me power to my life power how to react to other things so that I don't have the bad thing happen in my life. I go, okay, it happened. And so it moves on, and I don't have to go down the rabbit hole in that entire experience, if that makes any sense. Makes perfect sense. It's very well said. I'm going to have to ask you now, though, because you're defining uh, an existence that for all intent and purposes, uh, we could call a virtual existence. Uh, you're participating, um, but at the same time you're not. You're observing, but at the same time you're observing from a non-observing perspective. So Christopher Langdon estimated that it's highly probable that some intelligent life somewhere in the universe would at some point in their history develop a simulation full of artificial life forms or what have been called alipes. The mathematical calculation made on this suggestion makes it pretty certain that it would be some life form other than ours that would generate this A-life simulation. As such, there are many that insist we are nothing more than A-lives in a simulation generated by some other intelligence and that experiences of the kind that you just explained are evidence of the fact that we are alives in a simulation. Now, how do you see this proposition fundamentally differing, if at all, from Campbell's notion, and you have a chapter on Tom Campbell, um, of uh, the strict interpretation of uh, the matrix or or that of historical uh, that were created by gods or gods somewhere in the universe. How do, uh, uh, how do you see this experience as being any different than the possibility we are A-lives? Spell that word that you're saying, A-life. What do you spell that word? A-L-I-F-E. Oh, A-life. A individual, a singularity mm-hmm. thing. Okay. Yeah, and indeed, there are, you know, computer programs that have been designed where A-life, plural, A-lives, have been created in the computer. And each of these A-lives go out and um, they, they go about their business of finding food, building materials, uh, breeding, uh, uh you know, propagating and so on and so forth, so that they actually, we have computer simulations now with uh, simplified A-life forms that are carrying out what would be equivalent uh, to lower-level biological organisms. That is, they're living, they are breeding, they are surviving in artificial environments. And that's where this idea comes from. Okay. 
I'll do the best I can because I'm not a scientist. So I have a couple of things to say to that. You talked about Roger Penrose earlier. Right. You're getting into what, if I understand you correctly, mind, which is different from consciousness. Mind is a construct of consciousness. Roger Penrose has proven mathematically that computers cannot process meaning. In other words, meaning is outside the purview of the material world. It doesn't belong to the material world, so there has to be another world where objects are objects of meaning. And that's all that I can call the mind. Um, you know, that's the million-dollar question, and the way I interpret what you're saying what is the source of intentionality or the source of creativity? That's a million-dollar question. And the only thing I can say is the irreducible unit, or God, What I hate to use the word God because sometimes that steps on people who are religious, it steps on their toes, so I like mm-hmm. to use the word source. But um, if it's true, and every single scientist that I interviewed, all 50 or 60, every one of them, agreed that we live in a holographic environment, that it's a simulation, okay? I don't know. I'm just a woman. I'm just, I'm just uh, telling you what, what they said when I asked the question. But if that's true, if there's, and every single one of them agreed that there is no matter on the quantum level. You know, there's mass. Obviously, we can go out there and knock on a rock and feel it. Right. But there's no matter on the quantum, on the quantum level. If that's true... What separates anybody from anything else? Nothing. Now, how we get segregated into an individual human being with what we call little mind, that's what I call big mind and little mind. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. I I don't know. You know, that's a big question. I mean, I could spend five hours, if we had time to do that, talking about what I think about it, but um, we don't have time to do that today. But those questions are asked in this book. All of these questions are asked in this book, and each chapter is a different scientist, so it'll, you read the question and read their answer. And if you don't like it or you have a question about it, email me, and I'll send it to the, to the author of that chapter, and we'll find out. Okay, now, I, I'm going to have to, I, I just want some clarification here, because um, when you say they all agree about a holograph, the really important aspect of that, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the unique nature of a holograph is that any part of that holograph represents the total whole again. Um, you know, the story is always if we take a holographic plate and we cut it into a hundred pieces, we can shine light through any one of those pieces. We get an entire representation. So if I follow you correctly, you are implying that each of us are a part of the holograph. And as such, we're the little mind just this little piece that's been cut off from the whole. But there is a whole mind, which is the total holograph. Is that how you reason from small mind to large mind? I think the holograph is everything. And I just see a remark by Mark saying that Eva is engaging in reductionism, that God is the smallest unit. First of all, what is, you know, my response to that is, what is God? What I think is the smallest unit is information. I need to tell our listening audience that you're obviously in the chat room at the same time you're talking to yeah, me, following the chat conversation. So, but go ahead. Uh, we're talking about the difference between the small mind and the large mind, and 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 I'm asking you: Are you inferring that because 
of the model of a holograph that each of us are but tiny parts, tiny holographic parts of a greater holograph that itself is the large mind. That is the information. That's what I believe personally, but what I believe really doesn't matter. What scientists, that all of the sciences, scientists do tend to say yes to that question. So the consensus, you're saying, the consensus of opinion among the 11 scientists that you have shared in your book would say that that is indeed where uh, consciousness comes from, or, 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 or indeed the difference between a large mind and a small mind. I've got to be really careful not to get trapped in these definitions. That gives rise to my next question, Eva. If that is indeed the instance, then we have a, we have a problem with free will. Yeah. Uh, We currently know, for example, that if we use fMRI, that a uh, an fMRI technician watching your brain making decisions can know what you're going to decide sometimes in as much as seven seconds before you know what you're going to decide. Now, if I follow then your model of the small mind and the large mind, we're going to have to come to a point where we're essentially going to say free will is an illusion. That's correct. And well, I have something here I'd like to read you. This is from Elizabeth Rauscher, who is a... Yes, a, yes, yes, yes. I liked her writing very much, or her chapter very much. She's a former, she's from Berkeley. Yes. So mm-hmm. I asked Elizabeth, do we, the question, do we live in a holographic environment? If we do... That means we live on a level of what I call the irreducible unit and that there's not any matter. So I guess what I'm asking, do we live in a holographic environment and that matter we see is really just particles stuck so closely together we think they're mass? So her response is, a piece of holographic representation really contains the whole, but it contains it at a much resolution, much less resolution. It loses information. From the holographic model, I can't see how you could deduce the nature of matter out of it because it's an informational representation. So I said, is there an irreducible unit? He said, you mean a fundamental unit like a cork or a gluon and a pitch, a fit? Excuse me, wrong page. And her answer was yes. And that's what she had to say. You know, while you're on her chapter, I, I have really read your book quite thoroughly. And enjoyed it, and once again, I'm going to recommend it. But I particularly liked her definition of consciousness. You asked her, and I'm reading from page 221, what is your definition of consciousness? And she said, that is a very good question, and let me give you an analogy. Forces like the force of gravity, electromagnetic, strong and nuclear, weak force, are defined in terms of particles and waves. But in fact, force itself, like force equals mass, mass times acceleration, Newton's second law, is not defined except as the properties of force, which are defined in terms of motion and energy and momentum. But the force itself is not defined. I think that's the way it is with consciousness. We can talk about the attributes of consciousness, which I can give you some ideas about, but the actual nature of consciousness itself is self-referential, it's global and universal, 
And yet we're all coming from different pictures trying to figure out what this fundamental being is. I think that that is the best definition of consciousness in your entire book. What do you think? Attitude, and Bill Tiller will say, he won't, he won't give you a definition of consciousness. Right. Let's not talk about what consciousness is. Let's talk about what consciousness does. Now let's talk about free will, because you asked about that, and I see that's going wild in the chat room. Yeah, um, and see, I do disagree there. I, I believe we have free will, but then you have a marvelous metaphor in there for, you know, the steering wheel in the car. We're just flat not going to have the time to take it on. We'll leave that as a teaser so everybody goes after your book. Okay. Even in 30 seconds or so, tell everybody how they can reach out to you, how they can learn more about you, and where they can get your book. They can go to my website, evaher.com, if they'd like to order. It's not available until mid-September. They can order one through me and get a signed copy if that makes any difference to them. Or they can do pre-order a copy on Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Pre-orders are being taken on the book? Yes, it, sir. It, you know... Sometimes you read a book, uh, especially material that covers some lofty scientific principles, and, and we like to think, well, you know, I'm not a physicist. And, and they just, it, it goes over our heads, or we, we, we understand bits and pieces, but then trying to reassemble it is difficult. I'm telling you, this is conversational. You will understand it. You will love it. I do recommend it. Well, we've come to the end of another hour of Provocative Enlightenment, and I want to thank you all for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time, same place. And if you have comments on our show, do let us all know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Mm -hmm.